Well, good morning, church. Hey, I got three things that I need to tell you. First of all, Winter Wonderland, this Friday, if, if you don't know what Winter Wonderland is, well, now you do. It is going to be the, one of the best nights of the Christmas season. Bring your kids, bring your friends, bring your friend's kid, ask your cousin Tommy, cousin Tommy, you coming to Winter Wonderland? Bring everyone, Winter Wonderland is going to be an awesome, awesome, awesome event. We hope to see you there. It is this Friday. We'll see you then. Second thing. Now, this is, this is where I gotta introduce myself a little bit. It's, it's weird introducing myself because I've known a lot of you for like 20 years, but some of you are like, who's this joker? Well, anyways, my name's Gray Mitness. I'm the student pastor here at the fellowship. Um, and last week, I need to address something that was said last week, and I took offense to it. Uh, there, there's a man by the name of Donnie who was up here who was teaching. And uh, Donnie went on a rant um, of about, you know, five-ish minutes where he talked about uh, 25-year-old TikTokers um, and how you shouldn't trust them and how you shouldn't listen to them. And I'm sitting there listening to this, and I'm just thinking, but Donnie, I'm 25. And you asked me to teach next weekend. This is a personal attack. And I was, I was sitting there, I was like, I am not gonna stand for this, so, I mean, look. Yeah, 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 so, so I'm 25, but like, 50-year-old bald dudes? Watch out for them, you never know. I digress. But anyways, and third, Merry Christmas! It's officially that time of the year. Um, here's how it works, and if you, if you think of it any other way, you're wrong, sorry. Um, Christmas begins the second that you finish the Thanksgiving meal. If you do, if you're like celebrating Christmas beforehand, jail. If you wait till December 1st, jail. Immediately after the Thanksgiving feast is done, it is Christmas time, and it truly, truly is the most wonderful time of the year. So guys, I am so excited, and I'm so honored uh, to get to open and, and study God's word with you all this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 47. That's where we're gonna be hanging out today. Um, it's insane. We're in week 47 of 50 with Genesis. Um, time really flies. So last week in Genesis chapter 46, we've been following this story of Joseph and we're seeing the story of Joseph kind of come to its head, kind of come to its end. Well, last week, so Joseph, who's had a humble, a mediocre rise to power. He's the second-hand man to the Pharaoh, which at this point in history, Egypt is the powerhouse in the world. Um, and so to be second to the Pharaoh in Egypt means to be the second, second most powerful guy in all of the world. So Joseph is in this position. Well, now Joseph's family has come to him. He's revealed himself. He's like, hey, look, I'm the brother that you thought was dead. It's me. Um, and Joseph told his brothers, hey, look, when you come before the Pharaoh, you can't lie to him. You gotta be straightforward and tell him who you are uh, because Joseph's family has a tiny, tiny history of lying. And by tiny, I mean enormous. Lying's been a massive problem um, for his father, for his brothers. Um, and so he's like, look, when you come before the Pharaoh, say, hey, look, we are shepherds. We have kept flocks our whole life. When you come before Pharaoh, tell him that you're shepherds. Don't lie. Well, the thing about being a shepherd in Egyptian culture is it was a detestable thing. It was gross. Um, and so to be a shepherd in this society, you would be outcast, you'd be put, off, put far off, you'd be put far away. Well, this actually is to the benefit of Joseph's family, to the benefit of Jacob's family, that they would be settled in the land of Goshen. 
and we know that this was really, really good land, and we'll kind of unpack that a little bit more this morning. But Joseph says, look, you're going to be hated here. You're going to be despised here. He said, but I need you guys to humbly submit, to humbly serve, to put your nose down, and in faith, just seek the Lord. Just follow the Lord. Work and serve humbly. Um, Man, even if it's not the best thing for you right now. So they do. They show up. They do these things. They say, hey, look, we're shepherds. And, And Pharaoh sets all of this up. And that's what I want us to unpack this morning. What I want us to get to, what I want us to understand and see is that when we humbly serve God in faith, he blesses us. When we humbly serve God in faith, he blesses us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the truth of your word. God, I ask right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would convict. God, you would lead us to repentance. And God, I pray and I ask that you would Lead salvation for some this morning. So God, we surrender this time to you. It's yours. We love you and we trust you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as Israel is walking in this humble service, these outsiders, these outcasts in a foreign land, we're going to see that God will bless them. And he's going to do this actually, Joseph, uh, being the, the right-hand man to the Pharaoh, um, Joseph's about to make some moves. And Joseph's about to acquire a lot of power. And this power is going to kind of be the, the, the means by which Israel, God's people, God's covenant people, um, are blessed. Um, anybody in here uh, have older siblings? I grew up in a family of six, two older brothers, a younger sister. The thing about being the youngest boy is Um, You can't hit little sister because to hit little sister is a death sentence from mom and dad. But you try to hit older brother one and older brother one can beat you up and he calls an older brother two to beat you up. Right. So I was in a very weird position of just like lack of power in the house. It was very unfortunate. Um, And so we had multiple games that we would play. And man, I say they're games. I just got bullied. Um, But I'm better because of it. Maybe. Maybe. One of the games was, you're going to be like blown away by the name of this. One of the games that we played, me and my brothers, it was called Michael Vick. (laughs) Don't worry, it was before we had the family dog. (laughs) It's called Michael Vick. And the way that Michael Vick worked was, we would be upstairs in our our playroom is what we called it. And we had like an L-shaped kind of like couch that ran along the wall. And directly behind our couch was uh, a window. So come into play. And so the way that Michael Vick worked is, guess who got to be Michael Vick in this situation? Me. Um, And so the way that it worked is, I would have to touch the football to the couch to score a touchdown. However, that's not all, folks. When I got close to scoring a touchdown, I had to jump, and my brothers would cut my legs out from under me. Natural. Um, So there'd be, I remember, we'd play like 10 rounds of this game. I remember by like round five or six, you run to the end zone. I'm a little kid. I jump. My brother's cut my legs out from under me. Like I land on my head. I'm on the couch. I guess I'm like, I broke my neck. Like wondering like, oh my gosh, just taking a beating from my brothers. Why? Because they could. Do you know who couldn't flip them when they jumped into the end zone? Me. So who had to be the guy that got beat up? Me. That's right. Any other punching bags in the room? Yeah, one of us. Another thing, and then one other game that involves this window upstairs is we played a game called Hunter. And to play a game called Hunter, someone has to be the prey. Any idea who the prey is? It's yours truly. Um, And so the way that Hunter worked is we had these little like BB guns. See, see, it's already like, gosh, this guy. Uh, My brothers are great dudes. Anyways, I would go into the backyard 
and it would be my goal to get from one end of the backyard to the other, unscathed. And here's the, like these guns, they're like, so I would run, do you know what I had for cover? Nothing. So it was just me sprinting across my, bro- my backyard as my brothers are upstairs, like trying to take me out, like dodging. But like, I remember I would come in, like have like welts on my head or like on my arms, like a little bit of blood. I'm like, I thought that guys, that's so funny. Y'all, y'all want to be the prey? Like, nah, nah, we're good, we're good. But they were always in this position of authority. They were always in this position of power over me. And there really wasn't much that I could do about it. And we're actually gonna see Joseph finds himself in a similar position where he acquires all of these things, and through it, God's people are blessed. God uses it to bless his people. Pick up with me in verse five of Genesis chapter 47. It says this. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So he, he, he notices, he, he says, look, Joseph, your family is here, your brothers are here, your father is here. Um, the whole land of Egypt is before you. Set them in the best of the land. Look, settle them in the land of Goshen. Not just any land, but the very best. So remember, Joseph's family, they aren't Egyptians. They aren't part of Pharaoh's people, if you will. These guys are outsiders, and Pharaoh's saying, hey, look, just because of your faithfulness, because I love you, because I care for you, because you've been so good to us, settle them in Goshen. And not only this, here's the big ticket item in verse six. It says, if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Now, this livestock is going to be a lottery ticket for the Israelites. This will be the thing that helps them grow in power and in wealth and in stature and in status. So who's in charge of Pharaoh's livestock? Jacob's family, Joseph's people, the Israelites, God's people are put in charge of Pharaoh's livestock. This will be a big deal as we continue to go. Verse seven says, then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now this idea of blessed, we're gonna see it happen twice. It's gonna be the bookend of Jacob's conversation with Pharaoh, and we'll get to what it means, but Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Verse eight, it says, and Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. So Jacob says, look, Pharaoh, I'm 130 years old. I don't know about y'all, but like that's old. Like I think 50 is old. Um, and so 130, look, a few of y'all are like, oh gosh, like I'm 47, I'm close. I don't mean offense to anyone, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. But anyway, so 130 years old. Um, and, and he's like, look, they have been few and they have been evil. His years have been few and evil. And this is something that we have seen Jacob underscore as he talks. Um, he's a bit mopey. He's a bit whiny, he's a bit sad. Multiple times in the past few chapters, we see him just beg to die. Like, I just want to go away. It's been evil. He thought he lost his son, uh, mauled by an animal and killed um, his, his family, all of these things. He's just like, my life, my years have been short and evil. Um, they have not lived up to what his fathers did. I haven't lived as long as my fathers. I haven't been as prosperous as my fathers in their sojourning. And that's all that we get from Jacob in this conversation. Then he ends the conversation in verse 10. He says, 
And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. So there again is Jacob blessing Pharaoh. Now this isn't simply just like a form of greeting or a form of welcome uh, or goodbye from Jacob. Jacob understood that when there was, when Jacob pronounced a blessing on someone, when, when the people of God pronounced a blessing of someone, it was this idea like there was a spiritual, religious side to it. We've seen in the past that Jacob's fathers, they interact with foreign powers and they do not bless them. We've seen them have these conversations and not bless these people, but what Jacob is doing here is Jacob is acknowledging and he desires the blessing of the Lord to be on Pharaoh. And we're actually starting to see Genesis 12, um, some of the promises made to Abraham, Genesis 12, 3, is starting to kind of come into the picture. I mean, that's where God says, uh, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And so Pharaoh providing this land of Goshen, this great land for Jacob's family, Jacob realized, wow, this is a gift from the Lord. And Jacob pronounces a blessing on Pharaoh. This is wild. This is a, this is a very important scene unfolding. And so we're already starting to see some of the promises, some of the things that God promised to Abraham starting to come into the picture in Genesis 47. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and he went out from his presence. Verse 11, then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of dependents. So verse 12, this word provided, this is actually, this is the primary role. This is the primary thing that we see uh, Joseph fulfill for people, is Joseph is the provider. We're gonna see a greater picture of it here later in the story, um, but Joseph is what we would call a type of Christ. Um, he shows us a glimpse, he gives us a sneak peek of what God's savior, what God's Messiah would be like what he would do. So Joseph is going to provide for people. He won't provide in the way that Christ provides for us, but he provides nonetheless. So Joseph is the provider. And look who he provides for. The son who was sold into slavery, the son who was in jail, who was imprisoned, who was falsely accused of things. He provides his father, his brothers, and all of his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. So what we see in verse 12 as we get into this famine, as we get into this lack of food, this, this time of great need that Joseph's family is taking care of, and they have plenty. Verse 13 says, now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. So look at the contrast just between verse 13 and verse 12. We're told that Joseph's family has all the food that they could ever need. Every single one of them, all of their dependents are taken care for. They have enough food. Verse 13, we see there's no food in all of the land. The famine is very severe. There's a great contrast. We already see that Israel and their willingness to, first of all, not lie to Pharaoh about what they're doing. I'm saying, hey, we're shepherds. We just want to take care of our flocks and be out here and leave us by ourselves. That God is beginning to bless his people in their humble and faithful service. And so the land is in famine. It's very severe. It says, uh, the land is languished by reason of the famine. And this is no surprise to Joseph. This is the dream that Joseph interpreted for Pharaoh all this time ago. And so it's just as God revealed to, jo to Joseph as it would be that this famine is here, it has arrived. And we've arrived on tough times for the people in Egypt and the people in Canaan. Verse 14. It says, And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land 
of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought all the money into Pharaoh's house. Now, verse 14, this is where we start to see Joseph acquiring all the power. This is where Joseph invents the idea of playing the Michael Vick game. This is where Joseph invents the idea of playing Hunter, right? He gathers his power. He'll put himself in this position of authority, this position of power. And the first thing that Joseph gathers from these people is money. It says, and Joseph gathered up all the money that was in Egypt in exchange for grain. It makes sense, right? When you're hungry, what do you do? You go to H-E-B, hopefully on Wednesday, and you get the $7 sushi from $7 Sushi Wednesday section, right? You go and get yourself a little bit of snack. So they're like, look, there's no food. We can't grow crops. Joseph, do you have any food for us? Absolutely, just pay and I'll give it to you. So Joseph collects the money. And where does the money go? Well, this will be an important theme throughout this chapter. For Pharaoh's house. Joseph is not collecting it for personal gain. He's not collecting it for his own doing. He is collecting this for Pharaoh. He is setting up Pharaoh to be more powerful. He's setting up Pharaoh to have more rule and more dominion over his people. So Joseph has collected all of the money for Pharaoh's house. Verse 15. And when all the money, or when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. So all of the money is spent, right? They've bought all the food that they can. They don't have any more money to buy food. Um, and so they're like, how do we buy food when there's nothing? The buying power is gone. And so they say, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? I mean, this is a plea to Joseph, a man who is in a position of power and a position of authority. This is a plea to him saying, Joseph, if there's anything that you can do to preserve, to protect, to keep our lives, please preserve and keep our lives. Why should we die before your eyes? This isn't the first time, this won't be the only time that the Egyptians make this statement is, don't let us die. They say, our money is gone, we cannot pay for it. Verse 16, here's Joseph's response. It says, give your, there it is, livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So look, we're out of money. And he says, all right, give me your livestock. Remember, who is Joseph just collected all the money for? Pharaoh's house. Now Joseph is collecting all of the livestock. Who is the livestock going to belong to? Pharaoh. Who is keeping watch over Pharaoh's livestock? Joseph's family. Who therefore would benefit from a gain of all of the livestock in the land? Joseph's family and Joseph's people and their humble service and their submission, they're surrendering to God's way. They are being slowly but surely, they're seeing the blessings, the covenant promise start to creep into the picture. I mean, so he says, I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. And man, I almost think like, if your money is gone, like Joseph, you know, you know very well that their money is gone. You have all of it. It's like, I don't know, like I just feel the sarcasm like, well, if your money's gone, and like, I can just imagine just piles and piles and piles of gold lines. Like, if you don't got no money, I guess your livestock will do. So now Joseph has all of their money. He has all of the livestock. Continues, verse 17, it says, so they brought their livestock to Joseph, gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. And he supplied them with food in exchange for all of their livestock that year. So again, they bring all of it to Joseph. Joseph is in charge of the livestock Joseph's family is in charge of Pharaoh's livestock. Something I want to point out is, 
it's not just like a little bit of livestock. Like, it's everything that they got. Again, it's this idea of when we're, when we're desperate, we'll do just about anything to get the things that we think we need. Uh, oftentimes, that'll lead us in, into places of, of sin and of darkness, but sometimes it causes us to, to have great faith and great dependence on God to provide for our needs. Oftentimes, we mix up our needs and our wants, and we confuse our wants as needs. And when you and I, when we pursue our own ways, our own desire, our own heart, as sinners, as broken people, it leads us into more and into greater sin. And so when we follow God and follow the, the path that God desires for us, when we walk in obedience, we find ourselves in a place where sin is not and able to follow God in faith. And that's where we get all that we need because oftentimes our wants are just totally misplaced. It's dependence on something outside of God. And God will correct and bring us back in when we seek him in humility, when we seek him in faith. But again, so look, this idea of these, these horses and this livestock, Egypt became such a massive power um, because technologically, they were just way ahead of everyone else. They made advancements that the rest of the world hadn't made yet. Uh, it, it, it was talked about last week, but when Joseph sends all of Pharaoh's stuff to go and retrieve his family, it was likely the first time that Joseph, or that, that Jacob and his family had seen wagons or even seen a wheel, like a technological advancement of the wheel. Like, can you imagine, like, oh, the circle thing, like, why is it moving so well? Like, I just, also, I just don't, like, how, how dumb could you be to not invent circles? Like, they're just kind of there. Anyways, that's a side point. But what made Egypt so powerful was this idea of they had this technology that could crush everyone. What powered their war machine was chariots. They had horses pulling people on chariots. And so the surrendering these horses to Pharaoh it's, again, this idea of Pharaoh increasing and growing in power. Joseph, therefore, increases and grows in power. And who else increases and grows in power? Those who are under Joseph, which is his family. So they're surrendering all of these things over to Joseph. And again, it's this idea of when Joseph tells his brothers in 46, hey, don't lie. Do, do as you're supposed to. Just be straight line. It'll all work out. It's again this idea was when we follow and submit to Christ, when we follow and submit to God and to his way in humble service, it always works out. It always plays out to our benefit. So Joseph gathers all of the money. Now he has all of their livestock for Pharaoh. And who's in charge of Pharaoh's livestock? It's Joseph's family. Continue in 18. It says this, when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of the Lord but our bodies and our land. So they come to Joseph, they say, Joseph, you have all of our money. Joseph, you have all of our livestock. The only thing left that we have to offer you is our bodies, is ourselves, and the land that we live on. And so seeing this, Joseph responds, in verse 19, well, actually, you see them, again, make the request to say, why should we die before your eyes? Don't let us die. Please, spare us. Save us. Rescue us. If there's anything you can do, don't let, why should we die before your eyes? Both we and our land, they request, buy us and our land for food. And we, with our land, will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So again, why should we die that we may live and not die and the land be desolate? So they say, look, I will, we will do anything. Take our land, take our lives. We'll live in service to whom? To Pharaoh. So to have a, a group of servants and to have their land, Pharaoh would increase in power. 
Pharaoh would increase in rule, would increase in dominion. And because of this, who's attached to Pharaoh? Who's his right hand man? Joseph. And as an extension of Joseph, his family would also be blessed, would also grow in stature and in power. But these people are desperate there to save our lives, save our lives. And man, I look at our world today and I look at our culture and I look at some of the pressing issues uh, that face people and I see like, there's a weird thing arising in our culture um, where we think that there are certain lives that are okay to be stamped out, to be eliminated, to be removed. Um, but the scripture is very clear that every single soul ever born, every single soul that will ever be born for the history of all of time is marked by the Imago Dei, the image of God. It bears the image of God and at any point to exterminate a life um, is injustice. Um, it, is, it, is, it goes against God's desire for life because God's greatest desire for all of life is that we would live, know him, glorify him, and then spend eternity with him. And when these lives are cut off, when these lives cease, it, it, it grieves God. Isaiah tells us that it, it grieves God in his soul even to punish the wicked, but he does so because he is just and because he is right. But only God is just and right. You and I do not get to pick what is just and right. It is God's way. And so this idea of these Egyptians, we will do anything to live. We'll do anything to preserve life. I just, I look at our world today and say, man, how are we fighting for life? How are we fighting for people to come into knowledge of who God is? Because life isn't simply just existing. You and I, if you're a believer in this room, you know, the true meaning of life is knowing who we are in Christ and walking in that for all of our days. The question is, are we? Are you? Because that's what our world desperately needs. So these people are sitting here, these Egyptians, these Canaanites are sitting here, hey, we're dying, we will do anything, even if it comes at the cost of our land and ourselves, we'll do it. Verse 20, so Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because there was famine, because the famine was severe on them and the land became Pharaoh's. So the famine's severe, Joseph buys the land for whom? For Pharaoh, and the land becomes whose? Pharaoh's. So Pharaoh increases in power in, this, in the midst of this famine, in the midst of this suffering. Verse 21, it says, as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. So Joseph has their land, he has the people, and they become servants of Pharaoh, servants of Joseph in the land. Verse 22, only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave to them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So the priests, they get their own land. They, you don't touch it. So regardless, though, that just highlights that Joseph has every other piece of land belongs to the Pharaoh. It belongs to him. The people now work for Pharaoh because they've surrendered themselves to him for food. Verse 23, then Joseph said to the people, behold, I have this day bought you and your land for who? For Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you and you shall sow the land. So he's like, look, we got your land. I own your land and I technically own you um, in this moment. So here's seed. I want you to sow. I want you to cultivate. I want you to, to bring life. I, I want you to raise crops and raise food. Verse 25, or 24, sorry. It says, and at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little, run, little ones. Uh, in verse 24, something that plagues us to this day was invented, taxes. Darn. <laughs> Anybody here love when they get, that, get, get all the forms and stuff and you're like, all right, government, here's my money. Who loves it? I'm alone. 
right? But so Joseph like literally invents taxes. It becomes a big deal. Um, but oftentimes, and, and look, I think Joseph's situa- situation is a little bit different than the situation we find ourselves in today. But it's this idea of, look, Joseph has all of their stuff, everything that was theirs. Joseph and Pharaoh are in possession of it. And so Joseph finds himself in a spot where he can say, four-fifths of what you make comes to me and to Pharaoh. You only get to keep one-fifth. But you actually see the generosity of Pharaoh or of Joseph highlighted in this idea of, hey, give us a fifth. One-fifth of what you have will be for Pharaoh, and then everything else you can keep. And it'll be for yourselves, for your households, and as food for your little ones. Again, Joseph gives us just a small glimpse of who this Christ would be, what he would be like, and you see that he is overly generous when he does not need to be overly generous. He's setting this, this grounds for, for generosity. God will expect um, and, and, and desire for his people to be generous people as he has been generous to us. And so Joseph says, look, you can feed your families. I just, I just wanna, we just need a little bit of it. And this would increase Pharaoh's power. This would increase his rule. This would increase his dominion. And in verse 25, we see the people's response to Joseph's proposition. It says, and they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So here, here we see it really, really, really come into view, very point blank to say, look, Joseph, you have saved our lives. We've come to you time and time again. Yes, you've taken land and livestock, but we willingly surrendered that to you. Why? Because you had something that we did not have. You had food. You had food to keep us alive. You could feed us. And so they identify, they say, you have saved our lives. Joseph is identified as a savior of these people. It is because of Joseph's wisdom and God's blessing and God's working in Joseph's situation in Joseph's life that life has been preserved, that life has been saved. And so Joseph is seen as a savior and they say, willingly, we will be servants to Pharaoh. And it's this idea here of, look, they've been through years and years of famine and of suffering and of hardship. And when somebody rescues them, when somebody saves them from their hardship and from the difficulties of life and from all of those things, the natural response is, everything is secondary to the life that I have because of you. So my life, it's yours, I will willingly serve. My job, it's yours, I will willingly serve. My money, it's yours, I will willingly serve. And this is what God calls us to today. The natural response to those who place their faith in Jesus as Savior is simply this, that everything that I have is yours. God, if you rescued me from my sin, if you really brought me from death to life, then everything I have to offer, I will willingly give it to you. And I, and I look around and, and I just wonder, are we willingly offering ourselves as an offering to God, as a sacrifice to God, or do we drag our feet to serve on a Sunday morning, or do we drag our feet to serve our neighbors or the annoying in-laws or the annoying mom and dad or whatever it might be at Thanksgiving? Or do we, with a generous and gracious and joyful heart, serve those that are around us? Because the natural outcome of placing your faith in the one who has saved you and rescued you from your sins is service and joyful, humble, willing service in faith. This is what God calls his people to. And again, we see just a sliver of what Christ would be like in the story of Joseph. I owe the Savior my life. My life is freely yours. I give it to you freely. Verse 26 says, So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. 
So Joseph makes it a statue. It says, and it stands to this day. Now, I don't know about y'all, but like when I was little, I would read the like, it stands to this day. I was like, oh my gosh, that was a long time ago. It stands like to this day, not having like the brain power as a, I don't know if I have the brain power now, but the brain power like as a young person would be like, oh, 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 this was written by a guy thousands of years ago. It was the author saying that it still stands to this day. But here's what's really cool about that. The things that Joseph put in place to preserve and to protect and to keep life um, are still happening from the moment that the author's writing. And it's likely that the author of Genesis, actually the first five books of the Bible, it's likely that it's Moses. And if it's Moses, at minimum, these statutes were in place 400 years after Joseph installed them. It's crazy what the wisdom of a godly person can do for a nation, for a world, regardless. So we see this still standing. And now in verse 27, we get the full picture. And thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And now we start to see clearly God at work in this story of redemption. In Genesis chapter one, verse 28, the Genesis mandate, God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Um, it is the call to be fruitful and to multiply. You see that they are really bad at being fruitful and multiplying because sin enters the picture in Genesis chapter three. Well, as God is working to redeem and to restore his people as he promised he would from the moment of the fall, you already see it just a few years later that Israel has settled past tense. They have set down in a land. They have gained possessions. They've increased in power and in stature. They were fruitful past tense. They were fruitful and multiplied, past tense, greatly. You see the promises of God coming to a head, and it all stems from, it all extends from Israel's willingness as they entered into Egypt, say, God, I will, we will humbly serve, we'll put our head down, we'll go over here and do our, our duty, and God works and moves through the work of Joseph and of Pharaoh to make Israel great. So great, actually, that in about 400 years, the Pharaoh would be so alarmed by their power, by their status, by how many of them that they are, that he would enslave them um, and sentence them to a life of servitude to Egypt. And that's the story of the Exodus. But God would bless his people. He would bless those who blessed him and curse those who cursed his people. And so all of this, this humble posture, this having faith, trusting in God, that, that God will do what God sees best, Israel starts to come into the blessing that God promise them. And this idea of humble service for God's people um, is nothing that stops in Genesis chapter 47. It's actually the story of our Savior. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tell us this. It says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Being found in human form, the creator of the universe, God himself, God the Son, put on flesh and came to this earth. That's what we celebrate this Christmas is that God himself became flesh, the first man to ever live without sin. And he humbled himself, not just to come and be one of the, the, the creatures, part of the creation, but to die a death, and not just any death, a death on a cross, the most humiliating and shameful way to be killed. And what is the result of Christ's humility and Christ's service? Verse nine, it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The result of Christ's humble service is first of all, our salvation. 
through his work on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead, but also Christ has been highly exalted. He's been given a name above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what the humble service does for Christ. If it was not for Christ, willingness to lay himself down for us, not to just join us, but to die in our place on the cross, you and I, would. this meeting would be meaningless. It would be pointless because we'd be dead in our sin, Christ would still be dead in the grave, and we'd be wandering, waiting, anticipating a savior, but you and I have the joy of living on this side of the cross and knowing that the work of Christ, what he said on the cross, it is finished, it is done. The victory's been won. And so you and I, we sit here today, and the call in our lives is in faith to submit humbly to God's way to submit humbly to God's desire, knowing that if the very worst thing that this life can throw at me, which is death, if the very worst that this life can throw at me happens to me, it is then that we have our greatest victory, believer, because we go to be at home with the Lord. But until then, we walk in humble service, in faith, knowing that God will reward us because of the finished work of Christ. And so the question today two people, two kinds of people in this room. The question is this, will you trust in Jesus as your savior? Will you trust in Jesus as your Messiah? And the second, if you have, are you and will you follow him in humble obedience and in humble service, trusting that his way is better than your own? Because the natural outcome of your life being saved and being rescued by the savior is my life is yours, it belongs to you. Will you follow him? Father, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, we thank you that you provided a way for us to know you and to be in relationship with you through the work of your son, Jesus. God, we thank you that you did not leave us dead in our sin and dead in our trespasses, but God, you provided a way for us to be restored to you through your son, Jesus. Thank you that you give us an opportunity to walk in relationship with you. God, would you help us? Would you help us to seek you and to pursue you above all else? God, to follow you above all things. Because God, we know, we know that you are king, that you are ruling and reigning. And so today, God, as as we sit here, as your people, as your church, we pray, Lord Jesus, would you come? God, until then, help us to be faithful. Help us to be humble. We love you and trust you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray all of these things.